From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Hello, and welcome to No Limits. I'm not Rebecca Jarvis. This is Sarah Haynes. I am anchoring the new GMA Day, which just premiered yesterday, September 10th. And for this episode of No Limits, I'm actually turning the tables and giving you a big dose of Rebecca Jarvis. Hi, Sarah. Okay, you ready? Uh, Yeah, let's do this. Okay, I know in this you like to start from the beginning. So I know you're a fellow Midwesterner. Tell me a little bit about where your story started. So I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, My mom's a journalist, so early on in life I saw her doing her thing and seeing her in action. I was always really interested in what she was doing. I liked that she interviewed people. I always liked the conversations that she had and the ones that I could listen in on. Um, My dad was also a very supportive parent, and I I think a lot about how I approach my job, the responsibility I see in my job. And I think my dad really played that role in my life where, you know, he taught me to believe in myself. He taught me to fight for what I believed was right. And I think that really plays into how I approach being a journalist and a reporter. So I'm the oldest sister. I have one sister, Lauren, who's awesome. And we weren't always close as little kids. I sat on her head a lot most of the time <laughs> um, and also turned her bed into a waterbed once. But other than that, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> How was that done? That was so that was over the summer. We had a babysitter uh, who was with us and I went to I think we were on a timeout, actually, both of us in our room. And I decided to go to the kitchen and I took cups of water and I went and just dumped multiple cups of water on Lauren's bed and it said it was a water bed. Now, this babysitter was an amazing babysitter because it, it might have been this timeout or another one. She came into the room because we were making too much noise on a timeout and somehow the door closed behind her and the for whatever reason, we got locked into the room. Like the room, all the, three of you. Yeah, all three of us are locked in the room. It's on the second floor. It's my sister's in my bedroom. We shared a bedroom, by the way, until... I want to say seventh grade because we didn't have enough rooms in the house to have a second. So anyway, we were all in this room and the door wouldn't unlock. And by the way, the door didn't even have a lock on it. So I don't even know how it got locked. Anyway, my babysitter jumped out of the window. The second second floor floor window. I know. Nowadays, people are so litigious. It would have been probably a terrible thing. She didn't think, she didn't hurt herself at all, but she jumped out of the window, walked around to the front door, which was not locked because here we are in Minneapolis. So just the the bedrooms locked without locks. Exactly. front door. (laughs) She walked around. She came up. She unlocked the door and let us out. So that was an awesome babysitter. Shout out to Shyla. Oh, is Shyla still with us? Shyla, we I love Shyla. Actually, she she contacts us from time to time on um on Facebook, and um she's great. So our she she we grew up she grew up down the street from us. So yes. Now I know your life when I met you was all finance and business. That's what you majored in in college. Yep. Yep. Okay. So how did you make the turn? to where you are now? Because I know your mom's journalism, your specialty is business, finance. Were they always going to be a marriage? I always was interested in journalism, but I think, so 
I went to college. I studied economics in school and um, and and law. There was this pre-constitutional law program. I just loved that classwork. It was so awesome. Did you study anything? Constitutional law? Yeah. Well, I was a government major, but constitutional right. law misled me to thinking law was fun. Totally. So <laughs> I had the exact same interpretation. And my professor at the time, my, my favorite professor, Dennis Hutchinson, I would talk to him throughout undergraduate about what my next step was going to be. And he had dabbled a little bit in journalism too and so he was always encouraging of me thinking about that at the same time i graduated from college pretty deep in student loan debt it was pretty clear that if i were to go into journalism right away paying off those loans was going to be next to impossible i also because i was in the econ program i was around a lot of people who were applying to investment banking and consulting and uh i think i was so This is like the early, this is like 1999, the 2000s.com, when there's a lot of like interesting stuff happening. Also, like the the whole bust of the system happened as well at that point. But anyway, I was intrigued by the world of finance. I also had all these student loans. So I start out, go into finance, started out in investment banking. It was not an enjoyable experience for the most part. I was actually pretty mi- miserable most of the time. Um, it was like 100-hour work weeks. I never saw my friends. I had these roommates, Mia and Deepa, who I loved. But it turned out after about a year and a half of investment banking, I realized that they had a party every Wednesday night in our apartment. Um, I'm totally forgetting what show it was, but they would invite all these people over to our apartment to watch a show and like order takeout. I didn't know this because I was never home. I would get home at like two o'clock in the morning all the time. And I was just where were you living at this point? So I graduated from the University of Chicago, stayed in Chicago. And I just got to this point where I realized that I constantly was thinking about being a journalist. I constantly was thinking, I wish I was doing this thing. And I had paid off a lot of my student loans. So I felt like some of the biggest financial obstacle for me was somewhat settled. And I'm a pretty conservative person. I don't want to feel like I can't pay my bills. Doing something like that would make me really nervous, especially at that point in my life. So I made this decision. I would give myself two years, basically to figure out journalism. And I went, I told my bosses, you know, gave them my two weeks notice. And I started calling in Chicago all of the business editors, asking them out for coffee. And I would show up at every conversation with three story ideas. And my mom gave me great advice at the time, which was, if they say to you at the end of the conversation that there's no opportunity for you, offer to write something for them for free. And she was like, don't say it up front. Don't offer free up front. Maybe they'll pay you. But if at the end of the conversation, they're still not at all interested, say, but could I write one of these for free? So I ultimately had this conversation with Cranes, um, Chicago business. They really focus heavily on the actual business community of Chicago. And I pitched them some ideas. They liked them. They said, sure, we'd love for you to write these for us. So I started writing for them. I also reached out to this old, um, they're no longer around. It was a magazine called Business 2.0. They had offered me an internship in college. I ended up not doing that internship, but I reached out and said, hey, could I write for you? They also let me start writing for them. So that was the beginning. And that you had left your job. I had quit my job. Yeah. So I quit my job. That was it was actually a really tough thing because 
I was trying while I was in investment banking. I started trying to like do the apply for jobs and interview for jobs. And that was the path that everybody thought was the right path because it's kind of like, well, don't leave a job if you don't have another job. But I just, I would try and go to interviews and then I'd totally have to cancel at the last minute because my my investment banking job was so demanding. So I made this decision that I was going to quit and I was going to give myself the two years to figure out journalism. And luckily, Cranes came through and let me start working for them. Now, did that could you pay all your bills with that? So you leave an investment job, two week notice. Now you're writing. I was I had saved up a lot, too. So couple of things that my mom like really, really forced me to understand early in life. Give to your 401k, set money aside, spend less than you have, put that cushion aside. So I had saved up also with the intention. Once I once I got the feeling that I needed to leave investment banking, the some of the biggest things I did were the financial things, you know, scaling back, setting aside money. Now, were there any odd jobs along the way to supplement your <laughs> your income? I wasn't a barista or anything like that. It was more just like anything random. When I was in college, I laugh because when I was in college, I used to do at the medical school, like all of those testing. Did you ever the do free this? testing when yeah. you offer your arms exactly. or your legs? Or- <laughs> exactly. I would go and I would drink whatever liquids they gave me. <laughs> there was this one. I remember I had to sniff all of these different body odors. It was disgusting. But I think I got paid like $500 for it. So it was a win in my book. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That explains the twitch you have. Taylor did it too. (laughs) That is good money, people. That is advice right there. It's actually great money. And they would be advertised all over campus. And I was always like, yeah, I've got an afternoon to spare. There was one. I think it was like like a three-day thing. And I quit in the middle of it. They wanted to test the impact of alcohol on decision-making. And I thought, that sounds so fun. You're going to pay me to drink? Exactly. I'm in. Awesome. But what it turned out is I would sit alone in a room and they would bring me uh, screwdrivers, so vodka and orange juice, every hour, you know, alone and drinking screwdrivers, not so A little depressing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Now, along the way, was there a point in that two-year plan where you thought, I can't do this or this isn't working? I think there were points. I, I don't think I got to the point where I was ready to quit. It's interesting. I think one of the things I actually tried really hard to do, because I had come from finance, there were recruiters that would actually call me and say, hey, I have this other job in finance. Would you be interested in that? And I made a really specific choice at the time to not take those calls and to not let it entice me because there were elements of finance that could be fun. Most of them were surface. You know, I would travel to New York at 22 years old and I would have a room at the Plaza Hotel and I would invite all of my friends who were doing who knows what in New York and we would all hang out and order champagne and it was like, this is so cool. But actually the job itself was not enjoyable. Think a lot about the doing the work because while I wouldn't want to go back and relive it, I'm really glad I did it because I think it helped me 
get into journalism in a way, in a in some ways, in a faster way than if I had just come in through the front door. I always say, like, find a side door. Wherever, whatever job you're doing, whatever your passion is, if you can figure out a way when everybody else is trying to run through that entrance and the door is small, figure out that side thing where you have something special or interesting or you're an expert in an area, that's going to help you get places where you want to go, I think, faster. It makes you marketable. Exactly. You're right. And you're a little different, too. Yeah, you have to be. But, okay, so when, in this time, when did you change over to being on air from editorial and writing? So it was about, probably after about eight or nine months that I... Went. That's, is that that's fast? It was really fast. So there is this section of the story, which um, I don't know if you're familiar with the show called The Apprentice. Sarah, were you on The Apprentice? How did I not know this? Is that how I know you from TV? <laughs> I was on that show. Okay, rewind a minute. So here I am. I'm in Chicago. I'm writing for Cranes. There are auditions in Chicago for The Apprentice. It's one of the earlier seasons. So there are these auditions in Chicago and um, and I, on a lark, decide I'm going to go to these auditions. Part of my thinking at the time is I might be able to like do some undercover writing about what this whole experience was like. Yeah. So I go to the audition. I second guess me being there many, many times and think, what am I doing here? This is so silly. I need to go. I ultimately stay. I make it on the show. I'm Googling this right now because, one, <laughs> this is really wacky. Two, I think – I may- mean – Did I know you at NBC when we worked there or did I know you because you were on The Apprentice? Well, you know what? At NBC. So I was at CNBC while you were at NBC, right? And yes. I did the Today Show. During the financial crisis, we were on all the time because it was the lead story. Wait, but – I did this to Carol King once. I thought I knew her, and I knew her because she's Carol King, and that's her album cover, not because I know her personally. <laughs> okay, wait. Okay, Robert, pocket. Finalist on season four? You were a finalist? So, yes, that is correct. So, I, I did the show. I broke my ankle on the show. I made it to the end. I did not get the job. I did not get hired. But after everything... So post the show wrapping up, I was I went back to Chicago. I was working for Cranes and I got a call from CNBC and they said, you know, would you be interested in we know you're a reporter. Would you be interested in trying to do that work with us? And I mean, that was my dream. It was genuinely my absolute dream because I had watched CNBC all throughout college. You know, I was applying for these jobs in investment banking. That was where the conversation yeah. was. So I said, of course I'd be interested. So they basically, you know, you know how like the whole contract thing works in this business. You yes. basically need an agent or a lawyer. What was hilarious is we kept having these conversations over and over and over again um, where CNBC would say, yeah, well, this sounds great. So next steps, we'll figure it out. And this sounds great. And I kept saying like, yeah, and I'm waiting for the offer. Yeah. And I get this call from um, Tyler Matheson. I know him. He's, He's married wonderful. to Joanne Lamarca. Yes, he is. Who I love. Yes. Oh, my God. So I get a call from – oh, I'm oh, – okay. So um, t- Taylor just told me to say how old I am. So I was 23 
at this point. So I get this call from Tyler Matheson and Tyler says, you know, hi, Rebecca. Uh, just so you understand the way this business works, you need an agent or a lawyer in order to start talking about the actual offer and the the numbers and all of that stuff. So I said to Ty, Ty like, where where do I get that? Like, where do I find a lawyer and or an agent? And he put me in touch with Bob Barnett. Bob Barnett is big time lawyer. And so luckily he met with me. Bob Burnett met with me. He got the offer from CNBC and the offer was this. You have six months and it's sink or swim. The end of six months, if things don't work out, we go our separate ways. No hard feelings. If they do, that enacts a three-year contract. So I was like, all right, let's do this. So I moved to New York Matt, my husband now, but at the time was my boyfriend. He stays back in Chicago. Now, of how long at that point were you? Uh, probably nine months or something like that. Oh, so it was a young relationship. Yeah. And you're like, see, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I mean, it was my dream come true right, to move right, right, to right. New York. Uh, and luckily, he was very supportive of it. But so we did long distance for two years. But I moved out to New York. I go to CNBC. I... You know, in the beginning, it was like all of these people who I had been watching for all of these years. It's so weird when you're in a, a newsroom in the beginning. I try and go back to that place in my mind because it's all these people who you've admired for so long and they're around you every day and you're working around them and you're like pinching yourself. And one thing I will say is I would tell myself back then, because everybody has a bad day, of course, I would always say to myself, don't ever if you ever get to the point where you're like over this job and you have the days where you want to go home, remind yourself of the kid you were in the newsroom and how much you wanted it and like that you would call your parents. You know, I was on or in the early stages, I was on maybe every three weeks. And before that moment, those two seconds on television, every person in the family, it was like a phone tree. I'd yep. call everyone and say, I'm going to be on it this time. Watch it this moment. And so I just, those first six months, the biggest thing in my mind was, I felt like it was going to be one of those things where, who does she think she is? This 23-year-old kid walking in the door of this place, she doesn't have that experience. So why is she here? And for me, I really – I tried really, really hard to just be helpful to people. That was completely my mentality of I just have to help anyone in any way I possibly can. Um, and then hopefully they'll come around and see that I want to earn the right to be in their in their midst. I always call that point where you say if you can remember how you felt in those early days, the bottle it up moments. Yes. You can bottle it up. You can use it throughout your life. And we have those pivotal moments. And I they're love huge. that. But also the helping other people. You realize so much of our careers end up being lifted by others, but they're lifted because you served them first. It's such a good point. Yeah. I, I definitely, those were definitely bottle it up moments. And I think, you know, I've talked to my producer, Taylor, about this a lot. And I think the one thing that I wish... I'm glad I started where I did, but I felt at that time that I needed to have – I needed to convince people that I was worthy of being there. So some of, like, the dumb questions that I would have asked in the early stages, I just didn't because I was so afraid that people would hear me ask that question and think, what is she doing here? She has right. no right to be here. 
But it's funny. We must all carry those questions because there are Completely. times where you – I think everyone suffers from an imposter syndrome. Absolutely. And holding back, you don't realize until you speak up that most people in the room feel that yes. in some point in their day. And you're right. If you could go back, I'd erase a lot of the fear and just say you're going to be fine. Totally. Now, wait. So you get to the end of the six months. Yeah. So I remember I I made the rounds with all of the executives and I had it in my head that I was going to go in and, and have the same conversation with everyone. It was going to be like, so what were your expectations of me? Did I meet them? Great. I'm hired for three more years. So that was kind of the the. Did you the have way a hunch, though? When you went in, did you um, think I've been doing a good job? This is going to be fine? Or were you thinking this could go either? way. I think it, I honestly thought it could go either way. Hear more with my buddy Sarah Haynes after a quick word from our sponsor. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. When you went in, did you um, think, I've been doing a good job, this is going to be fine? Or were you thinking this could go either way? I think it, I honestly thought it could go either way. I wanted it to work out, of course. And I, you know, a couple of the other things I did, and actually this, I want to say this just because I think it's something I encourage people who are trying to get into this business to do. One thing I did that was really helpful, I would watch the news and then after the show, I would sit down and try and write the script myself. There's no perfect or exact, there's no right way to do right. any of this. So it's just getting in the habit of doing all of this. Anyway, I felt I felt like I had a good, decent shot, but there was no certainty around whether it would work out or not. And thank goodness it did. CNBC was, I really genuinely loved my experience there. I loved the people. I got great um, resources and a lot of wonderful mentors there. And it also happened to fall in the midst of the financial crisis, which was, you know, an awful time for the country. But as far as covering financial news, it was the moment. So this is 2005. So 2006, 2007, 2008, it's the financial crisis. And there's it. the, The stakes are so high at that point for what we're doing. And I mean, that sort of imposter syndrome, I would say kicks in in various places throughout. I think one of the biggest ones is covering the rising joblessness in the country, the number of companies um, The in, in my head right now. So it's the anniversary, basically, of Lehman Brothers. And Lehman Brothers 10 years ago went out of business. This 158-year-old country, a company that made it through two world wars, um, the Great Depression. And I remember interviewing people as they were walking out carrying those brown boxes that everyone carries when they leave a job with all of their possessions and kind of feeling like, how how can I be in this position talking to these people? These are people who have put their life in. A lot of them are two times my age. And I really felt a heavy responsibility, especially in that moment, to tell their stories, tell them well, and also we were really being called on by, you know, because I would see you at the Today Show, for example. We were being called on by all of these outlets to break it down and explain what the average person should do with their money. And one of the reasons that I made the jump eventually to work at a network 
is because I felt like the the level of misinformation, the number of charlatans, I, I would I consider my colleagues at CNBC and the people that I worked with wonderful and they did an amazing job. But there were so many charlatans out there giving the worst possible advice to people about what to do with their life savings. And I always felt this desire to try to correct the record and help people have the right information so they didn't make terrible choices with their life savings. Okay. Wait, sorry. I'm just taking. Yeah. So that goes through. This is when you're CNBC, NBC. You're doing- so, yeah. Yeah. So I would, you know, at the time I was on CNBC, nightly news at at, uh, at NBC and the Today Show, we were leading you know, business news was leading every single night. I mean, every night it was like the Dow sold off by this much and this company went out of business and is General Motors going to survive? Those were all of the questions. And so we were constantly being called on to break that down. So in the context of all of this, I happened to get a phone call from Barbara Fedita. And um, I talked about this with Paula Ferris because uh, she was she also uh, did you know Paula got tweeted by Barbara like that's how Paula ended up at ABC no yeah so so uh, we were laughing about the fact that Barbara was calling me at CNBC leaving voice messages and I was not I was still in this sort of blackout period in my contract where you're not supposed to talk to anyone outside. Yep. And I was so scared that somebody was going to listen to my voicemail and I was going to get in so much trouble. Anyway, thank you for calling me, Barbara. (laughs) Anyway, Barbara hired me at that point to come to CBS. I I I sat out a six-month non-compete agreement. Okay. Yeah. So in our in our contracts, basically what happens is if you want to leave your current employer, there's oftentimes a non-compete. And that non-compete will say if you leave, you have to sit out for a certain period of time. It was six months. That really freaked me out at the time. If I could go back, I'd tell Rebecca of, you know, whatever, 26, 27 years old, whatever I was, just chill out. Take and, a vacation. And enjoy. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I luckily did take a vacation. I I did but I was so nervous to not have a paycheck for six months and to not work because you're yeah. really not allowed to work and I was scared that CBS would just decide in those six months they'll eh. change their mind eh. that's the imposter syndrome yeah totally now uh so that takes you to CBS that means Barbara stole you again yeah so you're a Barbara twice poached love talent. <laughs> thank you Barbara so so I was at CBS uh spent three years at CBS Barbara in that somewhere in that time frame frame came to ABC. I continued to talk to Barbara, met Ben Sherwood, came over and met James Goldston, and I was immediately sold on ABC News and the big things that were happening here. And so I decided to make this jump to come to ABC and now it's really it's kind of surprising to me. I have been at ABC longer than any other company in my whole career. So I've been here now five and a half years. We came around the same time yeah. then because I you would have been here about six months because I'm at yep. my five year point in your. And I remember I was like, "Wow, Sarah Haynes from the Today Show. You She's coming over. I love it." Came down the escalator my first day. I'd never been in this building that day. We saw. It. I don't know if you remember this. I remember it clearly because <laughs> I was scared out of my wits. I knew no one. Amy Robach and I had walked in the lobby. Yes. And I had known Amy from NBC. You were like an angelic soul that you've never <laughs> ceased to be since I've known you. You came down and your first greeting gave me the warmth and comfort that I needed in a moment where I was ri- riding on tears for Aww. weeks. And you were like, welcome to ABC. I just started. You know, I, how have you been? Like, because we passed 
cross paths before and you were like if you need anything let me know I remember I went home and it's kind of like a little kid at school every time you change a company and I called my parents and I was telling them and I was like I ran into Rebecca Jarvis and my mom and dad don't know people, so they had to kind of look that up. But I, I said there was Julie Amar. She's not one of the top ones, is she? <laughs> she didn't, they don't even know which network people are on. They're like, you know oh, yeah, that they cross things all people the time. People generally don't know those no, things. No, it's, so. it's our My bubble. Yeah, exactly. But Julie Amar that day yes. and you were like angels. I describe you as angels in the day because I was so scared for so long in those days where you go home and you're like, did I make a mistake? And you're crying because you're like, I yes. don't know anyone. You I don't even not. know where the bathroom is. So you were amazing. But also I always tell people in the dark times of those early years where you're kind of treading away, you didn't have as many of these because you kind of – with your two-year plan, you set your life into motion early? <laughs> yes and no. I mean, it, it sounds like I, – when I describe it, it sounds so cookie-cutter and actually like it was set – I don't but, think it sounds cookie-cutter at all. Or, or not cookie-cutter, but like like that it was like I set my mind on it and then it just happened. I mean, so much of this – so we, we had interns over the summer and they would always say, you know, it's amazing what – the first job, how how important that first job becomes. And they were putting all this pressure on themselves to think about what their first job would be. And I said, no, it's all retrospect. Like the reason that people frame a first job as important and setting everything in motion is because they're looking backwards at that first job. You never know it when you're walking in the door. And, and I would encourage people, whether it's the first job or the college, I mean, I thought wherever I went to school was going to like change where what, the whole direction of my life. And it, it might. But at the same time, there's it, it's it's hard to have a wrong answer if you're willing to just keep moving with it. And if you're in the situation, a, a situation that makes you unhappy, having a willingness to move and make a difference and make a change and also having a belief in yourself that you're going to figure it out no matter what. I like I think your is retrospect really good. attitude because I've always said from colleges to majors that – the privilege is on the people sitting back planning your life, your totally. parents, the people giving you advice, school counselors. I don't think it's where you go necessarily or what you study. I think it's what you do with what you have. Yep. So making the most of where you're at. Yes. And you're right. The perspective comes looking back. Now, I stewed for many of those years. And I think um, one of the things that was always hard is I put my head down and you talked about this a little bit about wanting to help people. I remember there was a point where I realized – this isn't what I thought it'd be. This isn't the way I, I kind of saw this playing out. But I made it my mission in those times. Now, I'm sure you've experienced this, Rebecca, where people want to know how you got to where you are. Mm-hmm. Kind of what I asked mm-hmm. you when you started. And they want a map. Right. And there's no map in any business, yeah. but especially not in this one. If you were to sum up the journey so far, and rather than literal moves, but rather bigger truths, mm-hmm. what would you pass on to someone to save them these last 20 years? So, number one, find a side door. It can apply to all industries. Number two, work your butt off. Show up before everyone else. Leave after everyone else. Number three, be the most useful person around the office. And number four, I think there's there's like this balance between being patient and being impatient. And what I mean by that is, Early on in your career, early on in my career, there were a lot of things where it's like, this isn't moving fast enough. Why isn't this moving faster? And that's a totally natural feeling. And you kind of have to balance having that mentality with delivering on the things that you need to deliver on and then just 
continuously going back to the people who are making choices about who gets promoted and who gets what opportunity and just, you know, reminding them that you exist and reminding them that you're hungry, but also not blowing up right off the bat when you don't get the thing that you want when you want it, because that's going to happen over and over and over again. By the same token, I don't want to suggest that if you're not getting attention somewhere and you're working over and over and over again, sometimes that's the moment where you do need to make a switch, where you need to say, I know my worth. And as much as this place might be a great company, they don't see my value. Therefore, I need to go somewhere else and and, and that does see that value. What were the hardest lessons you learned? That one was a tough lesson. The being in in position where I felt like I was doing my best work, but it just wasn't going to get recognized. No matter what I did, I would look around and say, I, I don't get it. Like, what can I possibly do? And I'm the kind of person where when I look for solutions, I will try one solution a couple of times. And if that doesn't work, then I go to a second solution and a third and a fourth. And I think for me, getting you know, being in an environment where I thought I was trying everything I possibly could try and it just still, I wasn't breaking through. Um, for me, that was a tough lesson of you can do your best work and it doesn't mean it's going to be recognized. And you can be in a place that you really respect the work that they do, but they might not value the work that you do. And that's a hard thing to accept, and it's a hard thing to move on from. But as somebody who has moved on from that, I would say to anybody out there who feels that way, there is life after that. And the whatever insecurity or doubt you might feel in that moment, it does and can go away. When I was out of the situation, I told myself, you don't ever have to feel that way again. Because you can make a decision today that no matter what your environment is, you will never think that way about yourself or your talent again. Now, let's say you're in a position to hire someone that aspires to be you. What are you looking for? I really put a premium on hard work and a willingness to go above and beyond. I think that um, someone who is humble and is willing to do the work that they were hired to do and then some. That's the kind of person I want to promote versus the one who says, well, I've mastered the work I was hired to do. I'm really good at this new thing. Therefore, I don't need to do the thing that I was it's originally hired to do. like they lack a do. get it moment. Yeah. Or like either yeah. they get it or yeah. they don't. Yeah. I put a really high premium on loyalty. People who really are loyal to their work are who care a lot, who are honest and have integrity. Integrity is so important to me, especially in this business. What's your biggest weakness professionally? Um, like what could you work on in life? Well, one thing I, I think I could work on, I advocate for myself, but there are areas where I'm really shy about it. You know, I, sometimes I'll just like push myself to get in the conversation a little bit more. You know, I see what you do and you're out on set and you're so quick and you, I'm not saying you don't edit yourself. <laughs> I don't edit myself. Okay, so let's just go right there. Okay, let's go right there. So you don't edit yourself. I I've worked to get past that point of second guessing and editing myself. In oh, especially in live, it really situations. gets me sometimes, Rebecca. You're probably taking well, the better route. No, but 
like there's there's I mean you're hilarious but there's pros and cons right to both of those things but I do think so I remember when I first started in this business and people would say you know when you get to a point where you can 100% be yourself on air that's when you know that you're like doing the job the right way and did anyone say that to you at no, all? No, no, I think that's great, but it's funny because it's almost like a one size doesn't fit all. Everything you're saying yeah. serves you sure. in what you actually do. Yes. Whereas if you were the bold personality that's out there unedited, that's not who I want to tell me about things that I need to trust your numbers. I don't want Sarah Haynes to tell me about what's going on in the housing crisis. It might be more fun, though. I mean, hello, if we're going to laugh a little. And I don't check my numbers, so good luck with that. But I think the things you're describing are interesting because it's funny how from the inside, what you project as a weakness, I see as a strength. Because as you're describing it, I'm like, and that's part of why people like me as a friend love you thank you for some of those things but that's bringing me to your and that's why I love you because I admire that skill set so much where because I don't see not editing yourself as a weakness in any way I see it as a security a security in yourself and what's coming from you well the other thing is though I'm not speaking in facts or figures and I mean that seriously if I had to speak in things where I had to be accurate I really hope no one listens to this podcast. Yeah. Welcome to GMA Day. <laughs> but so, for for example, on the view, I was more careful uh-huh. when it was when it's more. But still, that's personality, not news person. Mm-hmm. When you're doing what you do, I would approach it differently because mm-hmm. you have, you, like you said, you talked about 2008 and the pressure on you as you watch people leave their lifelong careers, and you said, "I had to t- tell their stories, yeah. and I had to do it well and right." All the things you're saying about overthinking it, getting it right, that's who I want to be there when that's mm-hmm. that story's being told. Now, with what I'm talking about, we're talking who's dating who. This is pop news. It's lifestyle. <laughs> it's not a lot of heavy lifting. If you get who's dating who wrong, Sarah, I've gotten bad some flack for that, happen. FYI. But <laughs> if you dive deep without fear or censor on what I do, the risk is not as great. So what I would say is if you were sitting in my seat, Rebecca unleashing her high school self and saying, I'm going to be louder, bolder, bigger, it's much easier in my chair. Yeah. Your chair. So you say. No, I 100% can tell you. Everyone from 2008 is cheering. Yeah, girl, you're right. So what's your greatest strength? Well, I would say that I care. I really, really care. I really, really want people to have the best information and the right information. I mean, one of the key problems with the financial crisis is that so many people didn't really understand what they were investing in. Oh, my gosh. And they couldn't explain it. And even the the people who were supposed to be the smartest people in the room didn't necessarily understand what they were doing. And for me, that was a turning point in my career where I thought a lot about how to explain things and how to make them accessible so that anyone could understand and make better choices for their life. And it was so important to me that I not just run out and throw a bunch of terms out there that people didn't really get, that if I was using a term, I needed to understand how to explain that in the most basic way. So this, you're touching on integrity, which is clearly very dear to you. I have to mention, though, because I've seen, you know, when you, going back to dream jobs, Maybe it's just my dream for you. But I think one of the best things about you, because I've seen you fill in for people in different seats, is there is a relatable quality to you that possibly your Midwestern side. There's an authenticity that's 
not always found in life in any workplace. Mm-hmm. But as we both know, in this type of job, for before news was 24-7, you had 30 minutes where you had to put on a performance. Right. You had to do a hit that was a few minutes. Now we could watch us, people like us, 24-7. That stretched what we're seeing on TV. And the fronts you see, the um, quaffed people you see, yes. aren't always as they would appear. And not for bad ways, just different ways. You're one of those people that is Rebecca here on a podcast, is Rebecca by the elevators earlier, is Rebecca when you're filling in on world news or GMA, or it's just Rebecca. That's a big strength you have as someone that's a viewer of TV and consumes it. You talk a lot about business, about finance, entrepreneurs. That's your strong suit. That's It comes so naturally. Would you ever veer more into all the Rebecca as a friend I see? The personal life, the journey, because there's so much more to you, Matt, being a woman in yeah. business, but just being a woman in life, being a, a mentor. There's there's kind of an iceberg under there that people don't get to see. And this is like just a little teensy teaspoon of it. But would you aspire to jobs that showed more Rebecca? Thank you, Sarah. That means a lot to me, by the way. And I feel the exact same way about you, by the way. The Sarah here is the Sarah everywhere that we see those those moon eyes <laughs> the smiling moon eyes anyway uh yeah i would look i i am absolutely open to experiences that let me explore all these different parts of who i am and i think honestly the number one thing is so when I was starting out in this in this profession, I was young and I would look at people and I actually would think to myself, it must be exhausting to put on the front that you make this choice about who you're going to be on TV and then you have to carry that. And so I actually did in those early stages, I don't know if it was a decision or if it was just like who I am, but I made this call that it was like, I'm not going to be something other than who I am. And that has served me, I think, well, because not just in a professional way, but like a, I can live with myself and I'm, I'm I lay down to sleep at night and feel peace with the world. And if if the opportunity was something that really allowed me to just do that, that people weren't like, do it like this, try it this way. I'm totally open to critique, by the way. I love feedback on improvements. But if it's a matter of you need to be a different person, then I'm not really interested. I always say when it cuts to your constitution, you've gone too far. Yes. I love that you have these sayings. They're so brilliant. Well, I I think about them a lot. Polish is fine, but when it cuts to the core or you start to affect my person, then I I, I just can't follow through on that. No one can. I have to live with myself. Yeah. Yeah. So is there any, are there any regrets? No. No, I don't have regrets. I think the biggest thing for me, the reminder that I make to myself over and over again is you are much less likely to have regrets in life if you always make sure to pursue the things that burn the desires that that burn inside of you that sounds off but <laughs> no it doesn't i have burning desires and i pursue all of them welcome to late I, night with yeah. rebecca jarvis <laughs> but i do think that you know the not doing things because you're afraid to do them not the right reason to not do something 
if you're if there's something that you desperately want and you keep coming back to it, then that's when you know that you have to pursue it. You will regret it so much more to not test the waters on something than if you do test them, it doesn't work out. And I am a firm believer that even if you test the waters on something and it's not the right thing, you're better off knowing than spending the rest of your life wondering. I always say the no's are just as important as the yeses. 100%. they're all signs. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, actually saying no to things is also really key. Yes. Saying no to things, knowing that it's not the right thing for you. We had um, the actress Emily Mortimer here, and I was talking to her about why, you know, why do all of these actors who are great actors end up in terrible projects? Because you got to pay the bills. Well, yeah, I know. I said that too. But she said that a lot of the time, you know, not only is it the paying the bills, but you're encouraged to do something by your manager or your agent. And she said 100% of the time when you think it's the wrong thing, it is the wrong thing. And don't let people talk you into doing the wrong thing. Especially not people on commission. True. Hello. True. Now, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? I'd probably be doing something in business. I don't know what that something would be, but something in business. Okay, what the second option? Because I want to hear something outside of what we've <laughs> okay, seen. The lane actually, you've been in. okay, okay. One, I love food. I love food. So something to do with food, I'd be really into. I like to cook a lot. I would love to do something like in the restaurant food space. I am really, really into makeup. I cannot pass a Sephora or a Blue Mercury without wanting to go in. I love skincare products, and then finally. Um, I wanted to be a backup dancer for Janet Jackson. Oh, wow. Um, that would have been amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, as a kid, she came through the Twin Cities. They were, they were on the KDWB best radio station in the Twin Cities. They were advertising that you could go to this open call audition and I'm 10 and I kept begging my parents. Did that work out as well as The Apprentice? (laughs) (laughs) My parents wouldn't let me go to the audition. They said that you had to be 18, but I thought that would be really fun. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that. So, I'd like to be her backup dancer. Or also, I'm interested in, um, celebrity DJing. That would be fun. Wow. <laughs> Drop it like it's hot. Now, so you write a memoir tomorrow. What is the title of it? Oh, God. These are good and very difficult questions. I know, right? <laughs> Okay, are these questions going to be on GMA Day? Are you going to ask We're people gonna... that question about their memoir? I feel like I'm di- digging deep because I know you can handle it. Mm, Mine was would... going to be, yep, I said that. Is that it? Yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> or, oops, I said that. No, yep, I said that. Yeah. I like that. Take it. Take control. Own it. Own it. I don't know, Sarah. I don't have the title She yet. will give you an update, listeners, in the intro of another exactly. podcast with her final answer. That's that. right. Now, is there anything I didn't ask you that people would want to know? The backup Janet Jackson Jackson dancer was key. I didn't see that coming. Well, I mean, as a kid, I danced all the time. Did you dance as a kid at all? Basic. I did gymnastics and some ballet, but... So I did ballet, tap, and jazz from like Do you know how to five, do the tap dance the, windmill? The, the windmill. Yeah, I love those things. Oh, They're I amazing. love that. So I did that uh, from the time I was like five until high school-ish and I I really wish I had kept up because I loved it and I still now I go to dance class at Body by Simone which you have to come to me with oh my gosh wait who went with you oh Lindsay did. Lindsay Lindsay Janice we used to go all the time anyway I love dance um 
as a kid, I used to watch Star Search. and I love Star Search. Did you audition for Star Search in your basement like No, I remember when you did Apprentice and then you also did the whatever show? <laughs> yeah, oh, there was the whatever show. That was fun. On an NBC affiliate, you were almost a backup dancer, almost a backup. I'm rounding up for Janet Jackson. <laughs> You've lived the life of a star and you're so young. See, this is why these types of interviews are important. Um, I really appreciate you coming, Sarah. Thank you. Well, I feel like there's probably going to be a part dose. Like, I tried to stay in Because this is No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis, I did ask Taylor to keep me on point with making it useful for what people tune in for. Now, what I'd like you guys to do is write to Rebecca and vote me back in because the second round is going to be the lightning round with questions you never saw coming. I love it. And, And you guys, let me know what I can ask Sarah because we'll have her back and and, um, we'll get her. We can go one for one. We'll get her good. Oh, I'm so ready. Okay, it's the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Vishali Umreicher. She's the founder of The Empowerment Bag, which is a company that sells eco-friendly bags made by women who are at risk of exploitation in West Bengal, India. Her company also gives 5% of the sales to help survivors of sex trafficking in that community. And Vishali has always been passionate about stopping human trafficking. She spent a lot of time in high school and college in involved in anti-human trafficking efforts, organizing film screenings, bringing speakers to her campus, campaigning for anti-trafficking legislation. And I love that she created her company, The Empowerment Bag, as a way of bringing together that passion for anti-trafficking work and social entrepreneurship. Here she is to tell you more about it. Hi, everybody. My name is Vaishali, and I'm the founder of The Empowerment Bag. We are a brand of eco-friendly and practical bags that empower survivors of sex trafficking. Our bags are made by women at risk of exploitation in West Bengal, India. These women are given an alternative to the sex trade through literacy training, sewing skills, and employment with fair wages. 5% of sales on our bags goes back to provide shelter, education, and healthcare to traffic women and their children. My inspiration to create this brand was twofold. First, I wanted to create a line of extremely functional and practical bags to help you get through your busy day. And second, I wanted these bags to create opportunities for at-risk women to live independent lives. I hope you choose to check us out at theempowermentbag.com. Congratulations, Vishali. I really admire the work that you're doing, and I wish you continued success. And remember, listeners, you can head to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Vishali and how she created the business. Don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send those nominations or career questions to me here at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. It means so much when you take the time to write. I know how busy we all are. And I want to say thank you so so very much to those of you who have left us reviews like this one from D Fitzpatrick. Have listened to No Limits since it started. Can't tell you how many times I've stopped mid-run to write down something smart and inspiring a guest has said while answering one of Rebecca's brilliant questions. I finally just sat down on a park bench during episode 97 with Architectural Digest Amy Astley. It was that good. That was by far my favorite episode, and I've now listened three times. Congrats on 100 episodes. Looking forward to listening for years to come. D. Fitzpatrick, this review truly 
made my day. What an awesome thing. If we're getting you to sit down and take a moment, or if you're listening to the same episode three times, shout out to Amy Astley because she really delivered. Uh, That's an awesome thing. And we do this because we love it. And we're so glad you love it too. So thank you so much for listening. And thanks for taking the time to leave a review. Also, a shout out to our wonderful team here that helps make this happen every week. Our producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Michelle Boncardo, research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.